0: Welcome back to the Great Decisions Podcast. We've all heard the old saying, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Built into this 1948 statement by Winston Churchill are two profound assumptions. The first is that causal patterns, X leads to Y, exist in history. Otherwise, there's no opportunity for repetitive patterns. Number two is that we can actually alter the trajectory of history by learning from past mistakes. Taken together, these two assumptions reject the idea that humans are powerless. Recognizing the importance of studying history and actually doing so are two very different things. The first takes little effort, while the other can be all-consuming. Even if we limit ourselves to modern world history, There's still a time span of over five centuries of history to study. Modern history generally dates to 1500. This is something that both historians and political scientists agree upon, because around 1500, the modern nation-state was formed and became the building block of world affairs. How are we to study world history over such a long period of time? We have to simplify Otherwise, we'll be overwhelmed. In this podcast, I provide you with the options for the study of world history. To help us to continue to bring quality presentations to you at no charge, we ask that you register. There's no cost or obligation. It also allows us to notify you when the next podcast is uploaded. Depending on the platform that you use, this involves a click on the follow or subscribe icon. There are several ways to study history. I will outline them and you can decide which is best. The first is called the Great Man Theory of History, although we really should call it the Great Person Theory. Particularly popular in the 1800s is the argument that history reflects the actions of truly great individuals. Some believe they were blessed by God. Others felt that certain individuals we just more capable than others. Who we consider a great and historically impacting leader, of course, varies from one person to another. My list might include Philip II of Spain, Adolphus of Sweden, Louis XIV and XVI of France, Napoleon, Catherine, Peter the Great, King George III, numerous members of our founding fathers, Abraham Lincoln, Woodrow Wilson, maybe the big four from World War II. That would be Roosevelt, Hitler, Stalin, Hirohito. Since World War II, Mao Zedong, Michael Gorbachev, Ronald Reagan. The list includes people who were successful and others who clearly failed, well-intentioned and malintended. Common among them is that they altered the arc of history. Our second way of understanding such a long amount of history is to focus on the great ideas, the inventions and discoveries that changed the course of history. In pre modern times, fire, the wheel, the compass. In modern history, maybe the Mercator world map, which fundamentally changed the way that we viewed the world, the telescope, electricity, telephone, the combustion engine. Flight, television, splitting the atom, the computer, the internet. As we look forward, perhaps the most dominant invention will be AI, the ability to use computers to think on behalf of human beings. Our third option for understanding history is to focus on religion and ethnicity. This is a very popular theory today. It's called the Clash of Civilizations. Samuel Huntington wrote a book by that name, and it became extremely popular, in in part because it's very easy to understand, and on the surface it makes a lot of sense. People from different ethnicities and religions don't get along with one another, and therefore the fault lines in world politics are found when one civilization touches upon another. There are many different civilizations, depending on how we define them, There's the Western Civilization of Western Europe, North America, parts of the Pacific, Latin America, Orthodox Civilization, Buddhist areas of the world, Chinese Civilization, Hindu, Japanese, and of course the Muslim world. And according to Clash of Civilizations, we can take a map of the world and rather than indicating individual nation-states, we can chart it with colors by the seven major ethno-religious groups. And anywhere that we see one color touching upon another, we should expect conflict. This clearly passes the eyeball test. If we think about the conflict between Israel and its neighbors, well, that's where different colors touch. The historic conflict between Japan, Korea, China, and Russia, we have four different colors touching. And in Africa, there are the Muslims to the north and the other civilizations to the south. There's a lot of conflict happening in places like Nigeria or the Sudan along those colored lines. There is a major problem that I have with the clash of civilizations approach. Namely, it's not very scientific. It's an interesting theory. It looks great on paper and we can find plenty of conforming evidence. The problem is that there's much of history that does not conform to clash of civilization. Since 1500, there have been six catastrophic wars. The Thirty Years' War, the War of the Spanish Succession, the Wars of the French Revolution, Napoleonic campaigns, World War I, and World War II. What they all have in common is they were overwhelmingly fought within the Western Christian sphere. That civilization has destroyed itself over the course of the last five centuries. Much of that, of course, has changed since 1945, when the Western world unified against the Soviet Union. It does create problems in accepting this theory, since there's so much that defies it. A third option for us to consider world history is to look at it through economic systems. When modern world history began in 1500, the dominant economic philosophy was called mercantilism. It was made popular by French agricultural economists and spread throughout the world. Most all of America's founding fathers and U.S. leaders for at least a century and a half were mercantilists. And what the mercantilists believe is that an economy should be self-sufficient. You should produce everything that your people and your country needs in-house. Don't rely upon foreign imports, because you can never trust other countries. Mercantilism is firmly rooted within the realpolitik worldview. The realists believe that we should be self-sufficient economically and trade only to gain resources to further build up our domestic industry. This runs counter to modern concepts of free trade and capitalism. Under capitalism, the government is very small and it functions as an official or referee. In mercantilism, the government is an actor, is taking resources and building up the infrastructure and industry of the country is picking the winners and the losers. You get those resources from abroad by having a protectionist foreign policy. Here the mercantilists sound a lot like America firsters. You prevent foreigners from shipping their goods into your country by putting very high taxes or tariffs on trade. You also pursue a number of other protectionist measures, such as favoritism towards domestic production. Japan today is a classic mercantilist country. It has access to American and European markets, but it greatly limits our ability to sell our goods and commodities in Japan. As a result, the Japanese for decades ran a very high trade surplus. They brought in lots of hard currency, but didn't send out a great deal because they weren't buying foreign goods they accumulated wealth, which, according to the mercantilist, is the clearest indication of power. A nation that has a very high surplus of funds is a secure and powerful nation. On the other hand, a nation that runs up by high debt is a weak and insecure nation. According to the mercantilist, If we take a picture of the world today, the United States is the weakest, most insecure country because of our $32 trillion national debt. Mercantilism is highly problematic, however, because it leads countries to compete economically in a way that is not peaceful. Japan is a country that cannot produce its own food, only 2% of its territory is arable, and it has very few important natural resources like gold, silver, oil, zinc, among many others. Before 1945, Japan solved its problem of resources by invading its neighbors, capturing territories in East and Southeast Asia in order to acquire their rubber, their oil, their gas, and their resources. This leads, of course, to high levels of conflict. One of the main reasons that Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in December of 1941 was in response to the U.S. oil embargo against Japan. Mercantilism dominated world politics from 1500 until the end of World War II. And then something very important happened. The United States became the dominant power, and we issued into the world a rule that nations must trade freely. Capitalism was the new economic system, and free trade was its cornerstone. Not all countries followed. Japan and China, the Soviet Union, are obvious examples. But much of the world did adopt the capitalist mindset and promoted free trade. So from 1500 until 1945, the world's economy did not grow very much, and wars among nations were extremely common, including a lot of world wars. Since 1945, with the promotion of free trade and capitalism, the world has been relatively peaceful. Compared to the preceding four and a half centuries, the post-World War II era was amazingly prosperous, stable, and peaceful. This is in large due because of American leadership and our promotion of capitalism. Looking at the world today, we understand it because of the rise of capitalism and the promotion of free trade. All things, of course, do come to an end. We are today seeing the decline of capitalism. American support for free trade has been on the decline for 30 years. I spoke in the previous podcast about America First, Patrick Buchanan, through Donald Trump, among many others, They question free trade, saying it's not fair at all. So what we're seeing in Western Europe and North America is a reduction of commitment to free trade and a promotion of a more mixed economy, where the government plays a stronger role and where society is not nearly as free as it would be under capitalism to pursue economic success. Our final strategy for understanding history is the one that I adopt. I've said to you before that the mission of the Foreign Policy Association is not to tell you what to think, what to conclude, or who to support, but that does not bar me from telling you what I think, who I support, what I think should happen in foreign policy. My approach to world history and understanding it is through a classic realpolitik approach a focus on the major powers of the world i do diverge a bit from most realists, however in that i am an international lawyer by training i take what is called a structural legalistic approach to world affairs i look at the distribution of power at any time among the great powers and then i focus on the legal regimes that they implement as they lead the system or their particular portion of it. So the United States was dominant in 1945. It introduced international rules of capitalism, free trade, non-intervention, and respect for human rights. In 1815, the British were the dominant force in world politics. They had very different roles to govern the international system. And as we go back in time, we can take a snapshot of the world, look at the distribution of power, and then focus on the rules that those leading states implemented to organize, to order, and stabilize the world. The great powers, of course, are critically important to the evolution of world history, mainly in terms of their interactions with one another. Many of us view... The interactions of great powers is a product of the rise and the fall of the great powers. Which ones are on top? Which great powers are catching up? Which are in decline? If we look at the world, say, in 1910, the snapshot tells us there are at least eight great powers falling into three categories. You have the central powers, Germany, Austria-Hungary, squared off against the Entente powers of Russia, France, and England. And then the third category is made up of countries like the Ottoman Empire and the United States, which at the time had not chosen sides. The Ottomans, of course, chose the Central Powers, joining Germany very early in the war. The United States waited until 1917 to enter on behalf of the Entente powers. During the Cold War, the dominant feature was bipolarity, where two massive countries, superpowers, the Soviet Union and the United States, enjoyed dominance over a large portion of the world. Those two squared off in an epic competition. We call it the Cold War, but in reality it was the Cold Peace, largely driven by military deterrence. each with large amounts of power, each capable of causing unimaginable levels of destruction should they fall into war, therefore a relatively stable system ensued. When we look at the world today from the point of view of great powers, we see three that stand head and shoulders above the others. The United States is clearly number one, China is undoubtedly number two, and Russia is a somewhat distant number three, especially given his troubles in Ukraine. So what sort of world order do we have and where is it moving into the 21st century? Naturally, one would think that China and Russia would align to counterbalance the most powerful country in the United States, and they have done so. Very often, analysts and the public view China and Russia as quite similar and understandably. But there's a very important difference between them, something that sets them apart and puts them in different trajectories moving forward in their relationship with the United States. This is another element of a great power analysis of world politics that you can consider. Is a great power a status quo state or is it a revisionist state? A status quo country is one that does not believe that war is in its interest against the other major powers. It may or may not be happy with global leadership, but it does not want to upset the apple cart and risk its security by going to war. A revisionist nation, on the other side, is a great power that's rising, catching up to the leadership, and is unhappy with the global order to the extent that it's willing to use armed force in order to change it. Looking at China and Russia today, they share many things in common. They're large, they're powerful, they're influential, they have a global footprint, they are historically important, but where they are different is that Russia is the revisionist, willing to wage wars of conquest directly challenging American global leadership and the rules that it wrote in 1945 while China is a status quo power. There's not a lot in the DNA of China historically to indicate that it goes out and conquers neighboring countries. Part of this is simple arrogance. China has always believed that it's the center of the world. It is, after all, the Middle Kingdom. It doesn't need to conquer other countries. Other countries can look to it as a role model. That's the Chinese perspective. And China has risen economically, militarily, and diplomatically in these last several decades, not despite American global leadership, but because of American global leadership. The rules that we have written and instituted, especially open sea lanes, And free trade have given China the opportunity to sell its commodities to the entire world and to enrich itself. If Russia were to somehow wage a war against America and win, it would devise a completely different global order than we see today. But if China were to be handled the mantle of hegemon, dominant power, allowed to write the rules and lead the system what new rules would it really write? It doesn't at all have a problem with the American position of non-intervention, Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the UN Charter. In fact, it benefits from that. And it certainly benefits from global free trade and open sea lanes. The only difference if China were to lead the world is that it would have to underwrite the cost of doing so. Americans very frequently complain, and for good reason, that the United States pays the lion's share of United Nations dues, of peacekeeping operations, of NATO, among many other security and economic arrangements. That is part and parcel of being the hegemon, the dominant power. You write the rules, you enforce the rules, and you pay for the cost of the international system. China, if it were to become the dominant power, would suddenly take on the responsibility of underwriting the cost of managing the global system. It just doesn't make rational sense. So as we look at the 21st century unfolding, from the perspective of a great power analysis, we see continuing conflict between the United States and Russia, a continuing weakening of the alliance between China and Russia and a relatively stable relationship between the two dominant powers, the People's Republic of China and the United States. As I began this podcast, I noted those who do not study history, do not learn from history, are doomed to repeat it. What I can say is that the United States and China are not guaranteed a stable relationship moving forward. These countries can make significant mistakes that lead us into conflict over the Taiwan Straits, the island itself, China's presence around the world, the growth of China, and its approach of the United States in many power indicators. So what we have to do as analysts is understand that a status quo power in China indicates a very wide avenue ahead of us that can be peaceful and stable where the major powers can jointly manage the global system. Should there be leadership change in Russia, which is highly likely moving forward, we may see Russia reinvent itself from a strategic point of view, accept the American premise that nations should not invade each other and that trade is prosperous for all and therefore accept, as a status quo nation, American global leadership. That obviously is the best outcome for all of us. There you have it, a handful of ways of understanding history without needing to memorize every name, date, and event that happened over the course of more than five centuries. Until next time, stay engaged and make great decisions.